Hello and welcome to The Come Over, a podcast from The Combination, a programme made in Northern Ireland, but not necessarily about Northern Ireland. My name's Morris McCartney, and in this series I'll be talking to activists, academics and others, and coming over issues of grassroots democracy, equality, sustainability and whatever else comes up in conversation. In this episode, I talked to Tanya Jones about her research on the concept of restorative justice, how that approach relates to the issue of climate injustice, and how the present crisis, we're recording this during the COVID-19 lockdown, will provide both challenges and opportunities for those who simply want to return us to business as usual as fast as possible, but also for those of us who are determined to build a more equitable, sustainable, democratic and just political and economic system. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning. Hello. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And you? Not too bad. Um, You're in Dundee at the moment, isn't that right? That's right, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. As opposed to Fermanagh, where I spoke to you last time. So, And you're in Dundee because that's where you're undertaking your PhD which in a nutshell is about bringing restorative justice principles to the task of addressing climate injustice. Is that correct? Or? That's right, yes, yes. Um, I'm uh, specifically looking at the um, issue of um, adaptation injustice. I know you sent me some thoughts uh, before we, we talked this morning and um, uh, there was a, one line in particular, there was lots of it that struck me, and which is why I, I suppose it was we, we thought of the idea of doing this as a podcast, but um, the line that struck me, our responsibility has never been greater, but perhaps has never been so visible. And I think that's that's a kind of a key phrase to me at this particular time. So uh, we'll probably pick up on that in a little while. But but first, just to if we could maybe dig into some of the concepts that you're working with there. For example, restorative justice itself. Could you define that and and say what the key principles are? Yes, yes. Um, I mean, restorative justice, um, it's principally been used in um, criminal justice contexts and um, it really uh, began to be used in the 1970s and has been developing since then. And um, so far as I see it, there are there are five main, um, you could call them principles or um, you could call them elements because they're both kind of theoretical underpinnings and um, ways of actually carrying out the practice. And those are, first of all, a focus on harm itself and on the repair of harm rather than as in um, conventional uh, corrective justice on um, establishing guilt, you know, um, uh, conventional criminal justice processes really ask, has this person crossed the line into a crime? Restorative justice asks, what harm has been done? And it does look at how um, that harm can be repaired. Now, when I say repaired, I don't mean that in the sense of putting things back as though the harm had never occurred. You know, that um, is usually not possible. You know, we're talking about relationships and um, as, for example, the um, the film um, An Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind shows relationships can't be um, excised from, from people's lives. You could perhaps say it's more like um, that 
Japanese art of, of mending with gold, um, what's it called, um, kintsugi is it, where the actual process of, of mending um, becomes part of the art. Um, part of part of the life. So restorative justice is about repair more in that sense of um, uh, a transformational repair. That's a, that's uh, a new one on me. I, I've not come across that before. I must I must look that up. That sounds interesting. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 second element is um, the the centrality um, of the the person or group who've been harmed. That that person can be defined um, as a victim but um, as you and I know there are there are layers of um, complication beneath that word so um, I prefer just to say the harmed and not just the centrality of them in the process but the agency um, of the of the person harmed Um, the whole process only occurs at all because of their choice and it continues at a pace and to a depth that that person, for which that person is the is the prime decision maker. The third element is um, the harmer, the um, in criminal justice terms the offender. Again, I just u- prefer to use the the term um, the harmer, and their responsibility. And when I say responsibility, I mean that in really every sense that we can that we can think about. In um, in ordinary language, we use responsibility in in three main ways. Uh, talking about culpability for what has happened in the past. Um, talking about obligation to take on some duty in the future and about accountability in the present and responsibility in restorative justice um, covers all of those three um, and, and more elements as well really. The fourth element is the process itself and the ownership of that process um, principally by the harmed, secondarily by the harmer agencies, um, institutions, governments, so on, um, should, if it's proper restorative justice, um, be there only as facilitators, not as decision makers. And the final element was defined by the uh, feminist philosopher um, Margaret Urban Walker, who's been a great inspiration to me in this, as um, the capacity for active justice. That is, um, as I said at the beginning, um, not a, simply a return to the status quo, which may be impossible anyway, but um, something transformative, something moving forward, um, something building a future, and not just um, for the harmed and the harmer, but for the um, community to which they belong. So, um, yeah, those are the those are the five principles or elements of, of restorative justice um, upon which I'm, I'm basing the work that I'm doing now. Mm. And then the other element of the, the your thesis is to do with climate injustice. So maybe you could sum that up for us. Uh, yes, what that's... What mean by climate injustice? Yes. Um, it's, it's the basic imbalance between those who bear the primary responsibility um, for emissions, which is, on the whole, um, the global north, the uh, minority world, 
and those who are suffering the greatest impacts, um, which is, again, generally the global south, the majority world. And there's not only that imbalance, there's also the fact that the majority world, who are the least responsible and suffering the greatest impacts, also generally have the fewest resources with which um, to adapt. And it's that um, final element, that adaptation injustice, um, that I'm focusing on. That's um, a very good summary of the, that concept. Um, I wonder, there is that injustice and that sort of double-stranded injustice, if you like. What, what are the mainstream ways that, uh, that these are being addressed in, the, in global terms at the minute? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say there are probably um, three. Um, one is international diplomacy and um, obviously principally the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change negotiations and agreements, uh, Kyoto, Paris and so on. Uh, unfortunately, um, climate justice has played a small role in that um, despite huge efforts by the uh, global climate justice movement, um, by uh, majority world countries, by NGOs. But it, it has been the case that um, the most powerful states, the most powerful lobbyists have ensured that um, climate justice plays little or no role in um, actual agreements reached. In the Paris Agreement, um, there was at last... Um, for the first time a mention of climate justice, um, but it was an extremely grudging one and it appeared um, only in the preamble, which has no legal force, uh, not in the agreement itself. So although you know um, efforts are continuing to be made, the uh, COP26, as we know, has now been postponed, um, but um, there will again be calls for um, climate justice to be properly considered. But we have to be... But it's an, an uphill struggle at the minute. It, it, absolutely it is, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I, got, I, I wonder, is uh, the, the climate movement, the climate justice movement, I, I suppose that it would take more of a perhaps more of a restorative justice approach than the conventional. I mean, I'm thinking in, in terms of, uh, you know, as you were saying earlier on, it's it's almost as if there's two different mentalities about justice and what justice means. And one of them is to do with you know, righting criminal wrongs or locking up criminals and, and so forth. And But another one is a much more, I suppose, holistic approach. It's more to do with relationships, um, Absolutely. And I know you. You've said uh, you said in your your the the thoughts you sent me that climate breakdown puts everyone in the world in relationship with everyone else. So maybe you could uh, expand on that a little bit. Why is that significant for our thinking about a a just transition to a better world? Yes. Yes, just to, um, to, to pick up on what you said um, earlier about um, the climate justice movement and restorative justice, um, yes, that's, that's a really important um, connection. Restorative justice um, has been identified as having its roots in um, indigenous forms of justice and, um, of course, the um, 
Indigenous people have been very central to the climate justice movement. And so, uh, yes, that's, that, that's a, a connection that um, I'm very grateful to you for, for, for mentioning there. Yes, I think whereas in um, perhaps domestic environmental justice cases, um, you have a defined um, geographical um, source of pollution, for example, and you have a defined geographical area which is affected by it, and typically um, they are in proximity with each other, and the um, causation is relatively easy to establish from one to the other. Whereas um, in the case of um, climate emissions, of course, um, the emissions can come from anywhere in the world and the impacts equally can be felt anywhere in the world and there's no necessary connection of either um, physical proximity or causation um, that can be traced um, between one and the other. And that um, is a reason why um, conventional forms of um, legal mechanism struggle um, when it comes to the global injustice of um, of climate change. Um, we talked, you know, when we, we uh, did our previous podcast about the agenda case um, in the Netherlands and the fact that that um, successfully um, used uh, human rights law to establish liability. Uh, but that was only the case because it was shown to affect the human rights of people actually in the Netherlands. And that um, was its, was its um, source of success. If um, people in a, um, for example, a, a Pacific island state um, had brought the case against the uh, government of the Netherlands uh, based on the violation of the human rights of people in that um, island state, then there would have been no legal mechanism um, by which that could have succeeded. And so... I suppose it strikes me that, that the sort of justice systems, justice systems are still generally national or sort of state-based and that international law is is not that well established and so forth. But also that the concept of justice is much bigger, much more capacious than than law courts, uh, legal writ, as it were, jurisdictions. Uh, the concept of justice has to be go across borders. If the pollution and the, the, the toxins can go across borders, that's right. And the issue becomes something that is not soluble at a national and state level. Is that yeah? Does that chime with your thinking? That's absolutely right. Yes, um, and uh, you know, a lot of work is being done to to expand those ideas of justice um, to to take them uh, beyond proximity to uh, find ways that legal systems can learn from one another and um, work together um, but you know we're, we're we're in a state of great of great urgency um, we we don't have much time and uh, I suppose um, I'd say that we need every 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 tool every mechanism um, that we possibly can um, to bring that together 
we're also, of course, um, in a situation where um, international institutions are uh, under attack, um, most notably um, from Donald Trump, who's um, set out his intention of uh, dismantling as much as possible of the uh, international framework of, of, of responsibility and uh, uh, mutual care. Um, so we're, we're, up against, we're up against that one as well as the actual um, scientific effects of, of climate breakdown. Uh, obviously President Trump is... Uh, let's not get sidetracked. <laughs> we could say lots and lots about President Trump. <laughs> We could but we'll not get that. sidetracked. Um, yeah, it's a powerful position, the presidency of the United States, but it's also, it seems to me, and I suppose to lots of other people, that the American political system has been shunted away from democracy towards plutocracy. That's to say, you know, that it's, it's the wealthy and big corporations that have been using their wealth and power to shape the rules in their own favour. And I suppose that brings me to another one of the actors that we would need to look at. I mean, is the corporations, these giant multinational corporations, I suppose, as well. Is there any way we can use a sort of a justice system or even a concept of restorative justice to address the role of corporations in perpetuating and, and maintaining climate injustice? Yes, yes, I think there is. I mean, um I'm going to be looking at um, how restorative justice um, frameworks and processes um, might work on on different levels, including the the nation state level, corporations and institutions, and uh, smaller you know community community groups of one sort or another, and um, corporations certainly will be one of the more difficult areas to 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 explore that in i think there is the reality of a social license um which corporations which are based or carry out uh, significant parts um of their activities in democratic states they can be be called to account and um things like the divestment movement um, have had um, success far beyond, I think, um, what had been expected um, some time ago. So there is space, um, there is space for corporations to be called to account. And um, if they fail to act responsibly, there is the potential um, for them to be brought down ultimately by that. Um, so you know, maybe there is space there, but um, I by no means um, underestimate um, how difficult it is and um, how um, how determined um, those those plutocrats that you identified are to to hang on to um, power and wealth. I suppose that brings us back to the the phrase that I picked out at the beginning about that our responsibility has never been greater, but perhaps has never been so visible because. Again, this seems to be a moment of clarity. Um, the fact that we're everybody's under sort of lockdown conditions, um, everybody's beginning to rethink what their priorities are, what who are the key workers, why are they paid so little. So, in in a sense, I suppose it seems to me that kind of a COVID nineteen emergency has 
pulled off a cloak of invisibility from a, a whole range of, of different areas of life. And maybe that's what you were thinking about when you were talking about the visibility of our responsibility for um, addressing climate injustice. Yes, I think um, although climate change obviously um, affects us all, I think it, it does so um, in such different ways um, at such different times and in different places that um, it's not always easy to imaginatively grasp um, the experience of, of people um, in, in very different parts, parts of the world. Whereas what's happening now is a, either the pandemic itself or the um, indirect effects of um, uh, policies aiming to contain it are affecting everyone more or less simultaneously, um, although not, of course, to, to anything like the same extent. But yes, I mean, I think the fact that um, when I wake up at three o'clock in the morning uh, full of um, anxiety about the future, um, I know that there are people across the world awake at whatever time it is for them worrying about exactly the same thing um, and I think I think that opens up a, a space you know um, an imaginative space along with those other spaces that are being opened up by as you say our our, our realization of um, who we depend on uh, and what we depend on but of course, you know, it's only visible if we choose to look and um, we can only choose to look when it's brought to our attention. And um, one of the depressing things about um, the many responses um, to the, the current crisis are how um, insular, um, how nationalistic they they seem to be still you know there will be those sort of um, more nationalistic forces those more uh, again the plutocrats will be wanting everybody to get back to you know get back to normal as it were um, but one of the I think the, the great sort of phrases that's come out of this uh, situation is that we don't want to go back to normal because it was normal that got us into this trouble in the first place and the idea that we, instead of going back to that, this is a, a window of opportunity. The plutocrats are going to try and push it one way. There is a whole range of people who are now determined not to push it back that way, but to turn it to a, a whole new direction. Um, to do with, um, you know, it's to do with healthcare provision. It's to do with those um, key workers we talked about, the shelf stackers and the, the carers and the cleaners and all the people we suddenly realise, oh, we actually depend on these people. And by the way, they're on poverty wages and are mostly shunned from any dis public discussions about things or, you know, their their voices are not taken seriously until until now. And I wonder if there's a sense in which um, it's going to be impossible for, or at least it's going to be more difficult now for the the more sort of um, conservative forces to get everybody to go back to go back go right that's it you've you've done your duty you've we clapped you on Thursday nights pat you on the head and, and send you back to your you know the way things were before 
I'm not sure that the public are going to stand for that, or a, a number, a large number of people are going to stand for that any longer. So possibly this is a, a window of opportunity for a. It's an opportunity for a, either a just transition, which is what you know you would be calling for, I'd be calling for, or it's um, another chance. Uh, you know, you mentioned Naomi Klein, the shock doctrine. You know that idea that. Uh, plutocrats and so forth tend to use crises for their own advantage. Um, I guess what we need to do to make sure we don't let them this time. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that we yeah. push it in in the other direction. Yes, um, yes, and I mean we don't have um, obviously we we don't have um, much foresight um, into uh, you know exactly how this will develop, um, but we do have the opportunity to learn lessons from um what's what's gone before and uh particularly the um the response to the uh financial crisis and the the bank bailout there which we now know um did did very little but increase inequality and injustice so um yeah i mean like you i'm i'm hugely encouraged um by the kind of broad um, coalition of uh, voices which are calling for both a just recovery and a just transition and I think the placing justice at the heart of um, our response um, to COVID-19 in the same way as it has to be at the heart of our response to climate breakdown um, is, is absolutely key. I mean the two the two crises aren't separate, you know. Um, they are they are symptoms of a uh, a crisis of um, capitalism, of extractivism, of um, colonial legacy and um, global injustice. And in many ways, um, they have the same effects. In that, um, they impact most acutely on those least privileged. Um, they are caused by the same uh, factors and um, they have to be addressed um, in the same way um, by policies which are which are just um, at every level, which are just um, domestically, um, including, you know, um, workers' justice, housing justice, environmental justice, um, that are just intergenerationally. Um, remembering that the um, the greatest burden, both immediately um, of the the current lockdown policies and into the future, are um, children and young people, and um, crucially, um, have to be just uh, globally. We know that we can't have any kind of deep climate adaptation um, without it being just uh, for the whole world and in the same way um, we can't move into a, a post-Covid world um, unless um, we do so for everyone. Mm. You know, unless everyone is safe, uh, no one is safe. Well put. I mean I think I, I in terms of the global impact, um, I suppose one of the things that's become visible is supply chains that suddenly people have realized there is such a thing as a supply chain that you don't just get things from the supermarket the supermarket has to get things from 
a whole network, an interrelated network of, of suppliers that, that goes right across the globe. And suddenly we're beginning to see these connections. We're beginning to realize that to be able to wear the shirt that I have on my, well, I don't, I'm not wearing a shirt at the moment, but <laughs> just a t-shirt, but to be able to wear the shirt on my back, I, someone in a factory in Bangladesh has had to sew on the buttons, for example. Um, and I suppose these are the sort of intimate connections that are being uh, suddenly exposed for the first time because, you know, there's factories shutting down in Bangladesh because our high street stores are, are not doing any business at the minute. So, you know, I think this is an opportunity for us to begin to see, you know, as you said, uh, our, our it's not just our climate footprint, I suppose, it's our, our social footprint, our social, political, economic, our, our, our living footprint goes way beyond our own immediate neighbourhood. Yeah, yeah. It mm -hmm. doesn't coincide with our geographic location. It it it, it is potentially uh, so widespread that my neighbour could be someone in Bangladesh, someone in the Democratic Republic of Congo, digging up the the coltan for my iPhone. You know, someone in I don't know Argentina, creating the leather that goes into my shoes. You know, etc. So. Um, there's a sense in which maybe this is an opportunity for us to see that we're all part of one global neighbourhood. Yes, yes. I think, um, yeah. I mean, another encouraging thing is that um, we we not only can identify um, the problems, um, but we actually know what the solutions are and um, the next stage and what what we together um, need to be calling for is, um, if you like, an upscaling of, of what is already done, you know, um, in terms of um, uh, things like uh, food sovereignty and um, in terms of um, these supply chains that, that you're talking about, uh, fair trade, you know, um, fair trade um, principles have been um, addressing these issues um, for for decades, um, but that has to you know no longer be be a niche um, extra um, thing that certain people might choose to do. It has to be um, the norm for the future. You know we um, we 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 have the tools, we have the experiences, um, we we have the knowledge, and uh, now let's combine and bring it about absolutely yeah <laughs> yes i think um you know this 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 lockdown has um perhaps confined us um physically you know to our to our our domestic spaces but i think um it has also given us the opportunity you know not to be confined um in our in our imaginations um in our in our moral understandings um, it's actually the opportunity to, to open those out. To, to let our compassion be unconfined. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Tanya Jones. Good to see you again. And you, yes, yes. <laughs>